Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. Welcome back to another episode of Chats in the Blog Cabin. You know the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. And today I'm joined by Joshua. He's an author of The Repentance of the Southern Burden, right here. And he's also has another claim to fame. He is really good friends with um, two of the people that I greatly admire from Fayetteville, and that is Jenny Bell and Tiffany Haywood. And actually, Tiffany's the one that connected us, right, Joshua? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into chatting about your book. Awesome. Well, it's it's a pleasure to be here. It's definitely such a huge honor, and especially with Jenny and Tiffany, they spoke so highly, and I've seen a lot of the chats from the blog cabin, and it's a huge honor to be on the show, so thank you very much. Um, so a little bit about myself. Um, I myself am a resident of Fayetteville. I'm originally from Dallas, North Carolina, which most people don't even know exists. Um, but it is about an hour west of Charlotte, and it's right at the base of the Appalachian Mountains. And um, I moved to Fayetteville about 11 years ago, and um, my husband and I own a salon here in downtown Fayetteville. And then we also own um, two businesses down in Walterboro, South Carolina, and we're in the process of renovating and restoring a 1908 um, department store to where we can expand our operation and, and move to South Carolina. Um, our businesses, not ourselves. We're staying here in Fayetteville. Um, and a little bit about myself is um, I come from, you know, uh, middle class, uh, normal roots. Both my parents are phenomenal. My father is from the Carolinas. My mother is from up north. Um, so it was a rather interesting upbringing. Um, but mm-hmm. my family was also a fifth generation Baptist minister. Uh, my father was a minister as well. Um, so I grew up in a very strict Southern world and had to find my way and find my own path. And that was one of the things that led me to Fayetteville um, was being able to stretch my wings just a little bit farther. Um, Always laugh and say that it's far enough, but it's still close enough. So, um, um, but yes, my husband and I live here in Fayetteville with our three dogs and um, we absolutely love it. And we have made an impact here in our community and had our business, our salon here for almost seven years. And um, we do our best to make a difference instead of a dollar and work with our community. That's one of the things I was going to ask you about, making a difference instead of the dollars before we get into talking about that. That's your personal mantra. How did you come up with that? So the biggest thing for me was is that when I first thought about the idea of owning a business, which, by the by, I never had a desire to own a business. Um, I was I had a career working for a corporate company and uh, was working in the uh, cosmetology education realm and was traveling all over the United States, teaching students um, how to be uh, better hairdressers. And I absolutely loved it. Um, When I decided to open the salon, it was merely because I was really looking for some place to call home and change career paths Mm -hmm. while still maintaining in the same industry. And my husband and a lot of friends were the ones that turned to me and said, if you can't find what you're looking for, create it yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that really stuck with me. And the challenge for me was, is that I wanted to go at business to make a difference in the world um, and provide change as well as a safe place and someplace that uh, envelops community. And to me, I've always believed that the, the, the differences that we make are lasting. The money we make is gone with before we make it. Mm-hmm. So it's not about the money we make. It's about the differences we make. And um, I have been blessed to be able to use my financial resources to make a lot of differences in the community. And, um, and that's one of the things that has been one of our building mantras in our businesses, no matter how well we are doing, that we always remember our roots. And I come from a very poor, poor family and mm-hmm. uh, my family worked very hard and we're white collar and 
always made sure that we had food on the table, but sometimes it was a little, it was a little sketchy and a little scary, but my family always provided. And I wanted to make sure that I always remember my roots. So my goal was always when I go at anything is what can we do to make a difference? Mm -hmm. And then the dollars will find us. Um, and that's, that's how we built our business. And plus two, I have to put out something that I just saw on TikTok um, that Jenny actually shared about the aliens. Now tell me about this aliens in Fayetteville, the little alien statue. Tell me about that. That's hilarious. So everybody remembers when the monolith was found in the desert. They have like, we have no idea what's going on. Well, an artist took, a, um, took um, the idea and they put an installation in downtown Fayetteville, which was obviously on a miniature scale. And the artist put two aliens that were set up on this brick mm -hmm. and um, they were set up in front of the monolith. Cause everybody was like, Oh, the monolith comes from aliens and, and all this stuff. And so downtown Fayetteville being um, having a great sense of mm -hmm. humor decided to install one. And it'd been there for quite a, quite a, quite a number of months. And so we have this downtown group of business owners and a lot of people went by and took pictures and it was more like a photo op place. Mm -hmm. And Jenny and I were talking and she was like, would you believe somebody went and they decapitated the aliens?" And I was like, they did what? She goes, they decapitated the aliens and everybody in the downtown business owners page were just losing their minds. And so I decided uh, between Jenny and I, she's like, we've got to do something. And I was like, Jenny, I have wigs and I have, all of these uh, ways that I can, I got an idea. I said, meet me down there um, on Sunday and um, I got some ideas. And so we just rolled with it because I, I have learned in stressful situations, no matter how big or small, a sense of humor will get you farther mm -hmm. than harping on the negativity. So we wanted to take the opportunity and say, okay, well, they may have decapitated it, but we provided some options and solutions. So our TikTok is definitely um, blown up because of it. So I, we like to say that our TikTok now is out of this world. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. When Jenny shared that, I was dying. I'm like, and the tagline was like, there's nothing we can't fix. There's no kind of hair that we can't fix or something like that. I just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And what great marketing. Oh yeah. Did. It, I, it's one of the things like I, Jenny has been such huge pivotal point of us coming up with, um, on the fly ideas and um and i think that that's the key to marketing for a business is you know you can have your plan you can have your mm -hmm. um idea of what you want to follow but you also have to follow life so there are situations mm -hmm. and things that happen whether they be good or not so good and you may have to change your focus sometimes and change what your plan is and so when that's this opportunity came up we knew we had to jump on it um just because it was getting so much traction so quickly and it was something that we really, really enjoyed. That is so funny. And I am, I love, I really wish I could move to Fayetteville <clears> because <throat> I just love the whole downtown area. It's just so cozy. Everybody's so welcoming down there. They are. It's one of the things that when we first moved in, it was not a doubt in our mind that when we wanted to own a business, we wanted it in the downtown footprint. Um, that was one of the, the first places where I felt um, community. Because, mm -hmm. um, like I said, when I moved here to Fayetteville, I really didn't have anybody here. None of my family lives here. I had the directors of the school I taught at and my students, and that's pretty much all I had. So once I started stretching my arms out and started finding community, they all started centralizing around the downtown footprint. And so when we decided, like, hey, we're going to make this jump, it was no doubt in my mind. And they've been fabulous. I mean, we've endured so much in the downtown in our seven years, um, I tell everybody we're almost like the postal service in terms of what we've experienced, whether neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor hurricanes mm -hmm. or riots or whatever, mm -hmm. we're going to be there. And um, we've experienced um, a lot of losses, but we've also, all those losses are forgotten when we celebrate how many wins we've had and how much difference we have made. And, um, and I love the downtown. It is, it is our neighborhood. It is our home. I love the downtown too. I always <laughs> make sure that I stop at winter bloom whenever I go, because I just love winter bloom so much, the whole aesthetic and the whole feel. Oh, it's fabulous. It's, it's interesting. It's like my husband and I, um, when we were actually in town, cause most weekends we are out of town at our other buildings. 
But when we're in town, we try to go down downtown and support local as much as possible. And it's getting because the, the stores are getting so fabulous and the restaurants and everything is it's hard to do it all in one day now. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that I love that because when we start going down and we'll stop in the stores, we'll say hello, we'll buy something, we'll get a cocktail, we'll get an appetizer. By the time we get to the end, we're so full and exhausted and shopping bags on all the arms. Mm -hmm. We want to start all over again because we feel like we missed something. And that's what I love about the community is it is slow paced for mm -hmm. all of us. And it's, it, it, it's phenomenal. It, it's big enough to where you can spend the entire day, but it's not so big that you don't, that you feel like you are lost in the masses. And so um, it's a lot of fun. You can be on one side of the street and someone sees me and, um, People are running across the street and we just have full on conversations. So if I do want to walk down down Hay Street, it does take a little bit of time at times because either I see somebody mm -hmm. or they see me and it turns into a full conversation and my husband's just standing there. So <laughs> he tries to, <laughs> he he's uh, known in the community as well, but he definitely says that I'm the face of the our businesses. Um and so he he's definitely phenomenal when it comes to uh, the support and, and being on the backside. Okay. Um, we got to take a brief commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about your book. Are you ready? Awesome. Absolutely. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now. Dear Mr. Dear Mr. President, and finally, Madam Vice President. Dear President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, congratulations on winning the election. One concern I have is thinking about all those families who got separated. One worry I have is people are dying from COVID-19. People think the vaccine is here so everything is fine. One thing you should know about kids my age is that we have questions and want answers. If I was in charge like you, I would keep in mind kids can do a lot more than you could ever imagine. If I was in charge like you, I would visit local schools to see what kids need. Poor people should have nicer houses and more food. We should make clean energy more accessible to the average citizen. I would work hard to keep people safe. I would stop the nonsense. What will you do with the power you have now? And we are back talking with Joshua, the author of The Repentance of the Southern Burden which is a story about coming out in the South. Was it part of your biography? Was part of you in that story? So what I like to tell everybody is my story has parts in this. Um, I, it's a fictional depiction, um, but I wanted to add light and add a little bit of my story to it, but not so much to where the readers that we have could not picture their story because every mm -hmm. coming out regardless of lgbtq plus community um coming out um as transgendered and uh coming out is a process no matter what sexuality or situation um and i wanted to make sure that everybody in reading the story could visualize um themselves and so there are aspects of my coming out story and my experiences that are in the book however they're fictionally depicted um and there's a lot of details that are not quite the same um i made sure the feelings and emotions mm -hmm. um the family interactions a lot of those are uh depictions of similarities of my own life um and then specifically the uh, the connection and what the purpose of the book is, it is definitely um, the purpose of the book is personal. And it's something that it's something that I struggled with for years. So what made you decide to write this since you just said you struggled with it for years? Um, there was multiple things is anybody that knows me knows that uh, 
I am a storyteller. Um, I feel like I was gained, I gained that, um, that prize from my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother was an amazing storyteller. Anytime she sat down, she would recall stories that were from the family and she kind of became like the family historian and um, always remembered everything, though mm -hmm. every story tended to have a 10% shift every time she would tell it. Um, but we just, you know, you, we just knew that my grandmother was the storyteller and I kind of picked that up. And so the reason why I wrote the book um, was twofold. One was having a conversation with Jenny Bell um, and I was telling her about you know, the coming out and we were, we were talking about the struggles of the LGBTQ plus community and how I felt like it was so Hollywood. Like everybody expected it to have this mm -hmm. lifetime movie network finish. And then it was all unicorns and rainbows. And, and there wasn't anything in terms of what the perspective of that pre coming out process mm -hmm. was like. Um, everybody thinks that, the LGBTQ plus, when you see these stories, you see them in major metropolitan communities. You see them in, you know, New York and Las Vegas and Los Angeles. You don't really see the coming out stories of those of us that are in rural America. And especially those that don't even know at the time, and this is taking us back to the nineties when, because of the lack of internet and uh, media access, there wasn't the commonality of being able to see the words gay or even knowing what it was about. Um, in the book, there is um, a reference to when Ellen DeGeneres on the Ellen show um, finally came out and said, I'm gay. And it was on the front page of every magazine. And I remember that that was one of the first times I ever heard my parents speak of um the gay community and it was one of those things that it's it is stuck with me over the years as that experience it is definitely something that is time stamped in my brain mm -hmm. so when it came time to write the book or the idea of the book was i knew that i needed to do it in a southern perspective because mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that when i came out that not just my parents but my family immediately when they heard that I was gay, they immediately switched gears and it was like, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? And it, then I started realizing when I was recanting these stories of my coming out of how much of that misunderstanding or frustration for my family was not the fact that I was LGBT, but it was because of a lot of the burdens of what it's like sometimes with coming out in the South. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of requirements of unknown requirements of being Southern that are require, required of you mm -hmm. that are generationally placed on you. And um, it was just like the light bulb went off. And then I started just sharing ideas with Jenny and of course laughing and, and sharing with her being from Texas and myself being from North Carolina, we were comparing notes on, you know, you have to master a casserole and that's what you're known for or someone mm -hmm. dies you may you always make sure you have the reynolds wrap casserole pans and gross in your cabinets because you never know when you need to make mm -hmm. something for someone when someone passes away or someone has a baby or you know there's just certain things that are understood um and i wanted to really shed light and uh like my husband said i wanted to blow the doors off the church um because mm -hmm. in the south a lot of times it's more focus is put on what's on the front porch, but nobody knows what's behind that front door. Yeah. And it's two different worlds um, because it's about what the, everybody else sees sometimes more so than how can we be a community? I love that. I mean, when you're, when you were coming out, you you said it was what in the nineties, right? Is that what you said? I actually came out in early 2000. I came out in okay. 2001. <clears throat> I came out in 2001. Um, I came out to myself in the mid to late 90s. Um, I was 14 when I really came to terms with the fact that I was what the world seen as different. Mm -hmm. um, I've now learned that I and what we try to portray to other LGBT youth is you're not different. You're special. Mm -hmm you're unique. And so my uniqueness to me was discovered when I was in my um, 14, 15 year. 
Um, but yeah, it was definitely a different world than it is now for sure. Um, I'm definitely blessed that I had, I did, I did have in all the negativity and situations, I did have a few people that kept pushing me. And that's one of the things that I attribute. Um, my next book is actually going to be dedicated to those people. Um, and, um, and those people a lot of times don't even know the power of their connection. So that's one of the things that I think motivates me to make a difference. Well, you were just talking about at the very beginning that you come from a long line of pastors. How did that yes. affect what kind of reaction they get when you came out? Um, it was, uh, I would love to say that they were, uh, love thy neighbor, but unfortunately it was not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, my family, like I said, was very, very, um, deep in the trenches, of of the Southern religion and Southern Baptist. Um, it's still a, a practice that I feel, uh, is important. And, um, it's something that is in the background of all the things that my husband and I do. Um, when I came out, the hardest part for my family and granted, I'm going to preface this as that my family and I have an amazing relationship now. It took many years and my parents and my family are in a huge, amazing support. They were the first to buy my book. Um, but then because it was more unknowns and mm -hmm. unsure, uh, my family had a very difficult time. Um, they were at first very concerned about what everybody else is going to think. What were they going to think in the church? What were mm -hmm. they going to think in the community? Because my family was rather affluent um, in our small community because um, our family had lived in the same area for mm -hmm. multiple generations and settled the area. And then it turned to how are you going to be able to do this? And my family made it very strong that there were stipulations of you can be this person, but you can't do this around us. You can't say this around us. You can't let the smaller kids know you can't. And it was very much so like I was um, definitely the black sheep of the family. And, um, and it was really hard. And I remember sitting in my room and it was right after my grandmother passed away in November, 2001. And um, when I was sitting in my room and I was just sitting there and at the time I loved the journal and that's one of the ways that one of my inspirations, um, her name was Melissa Finley. Um, she was my librarian when I was in mm -hmm. high school and she told me to journal and write down and keep myself grounded. And as I was journaling, I was just crying. I was like, I feel like I have a list, a rule book that I have to follow every mm -hmm. time I'm around my family. And I just set up and I was like, you know what? I'm going to follow my own rule book. And I have a job. I have good grades. And my goal is to get out of this community as fast as possible. And so I buckled down and I went from a B and C student to um, a A's across the board and finishing um, with uh, a medical, uh, a nursing degree when I graduated high school, because I really buckled down and I, I knew that I needed something to get me out of this community. And I've later learned that it wasn't the community's fault. It just was the time period. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a lot of work for us to do within the community, but um, it's fabulous to see um, rainbow flags flying mm -hmm. in my hometown. It's fabulous to hear same-sex couples being able to get tickets to the prom. It's you know, there's certain things that are fabulous about it. And there are things that, unfortunately, with having a family in the deep-rooted South, mm -hmm. that there were experiences that I had to endure by myself. Uh, one, for instance, was my senior year of high school. I um, had a thesis that everybody has, so you work the entire year on. And my it had to be a conflict. Um, had to be a thesis on something that was uh, a conflict in nature. So something that was difficult to talk about and you had to do this whole thesis on it. Well, at the time was during Rosie O'Donnell's fight um, with mm. gay and lesbian adoption down in Florida. So I decided I was gonna make mine about gay and lesbian adoption. 
And I worked on that entire project for an entire year. And I, it's the point of contacting PFLAG down in Atlanta, having interviews with congressmen and doctors. Like I went way above and beyond what was expected of a high schooler, but I wanted to make sure. And when it came time to do the oral representation and presentation of my project, my teacher looked at me and said, I'm just going to give you a passing. You don't have to present. And I told her, I was like, I want to present in front of the class. She's like, no, you're just getting a barely, I'm just going to pass you with a B. And I was devastated. And I, I was like, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, so 17 year old Joshua said, that's not okay. And I got in my car, I drove over to the school board and I sat in front of the school superintendent's door, his office door and sat there for an hour waiting for him to come out. And I was like, I'm getting my project heard. Um, after having a conversation with um, our school superintendent, um, my project was heard and it was recorded and they played it for the entire senior year or senior um, students. In that experience, how stressful it was, I had no support from my family. Mm -hmm. I had no support from my parents standing beside me. I had nobody there pushing me and saying, do this, do this. Um, it was something that was not shared. I knew I couldn't rely on my parents. Mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't rely on my family because of their religious requirements. Um, I also knew when I came out that that meant an end to my membership in my church. I knew the church would not support me. And this is a church mm -hmm. that my family started in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And I had to step away at 16. Um, later on, um, a lot of things have changed. A lot of relationships have changed. Um, but that's why repentance of the Southern Burden is so important because it's those relationships and that moment of when the family goes from being a family unit to a family of judgment. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and that's where the the southern burden plays into that role. So, where did you find support during all this? Um, I found support, um, believe it or not, with my friends, who I know um, generationally and with everybody. As everybody's like, okay, you need to always look up for mentors, and I think a lot of people get the idea that mentors need to be much older than you or or you know have all this going for them but sometimes your mentors can be the person sitting beside you and um my friends that i had at the time i was a uh i was a marching band geek i loved it um we had our own little community within the school and um they were the first people i came out to and it was january 1st 2001 or excuse me 2002 that when i actually said i'm gay for the first time and it was with my friends and it was my friends that really pushed me and said, we got you, you can do this. And then there was one teacher that I had, like I said earlier, M Melissa Finley. Um, she secretively at the time, because we, her helping me with my project and having discussions, there were no protections in the workplace for LGBT community. And she was herself part of the LGBT community. And um, she's the one that helped me with all the resources. And at the time, we were um, buying new books for the library, and I was a library assistant as one of my elective classes. Mm -hmm. And so we s snuck in ordering four or five books that were for the LGBT community and these massive orders of getting new books. And of course, I was the first one to grab them and rent them and, and mm -hmm. check them out. And there were many a nights or many a days we were in school that I sat in her office and just cried and cried and cried because I just didn't understand. And she would give me, um, and she would hide them in books. And it was resources for P flag, um, resources for time out youth in Charlotte, um, resources. And this is before, you know, the internet is easily accessible to mm -hmm. the rural communities. We still only had dial up, um, which I know some of your younger viewers have no idea what that is, but, <laughs> But uh, it definitely was something that, um, uh, had it not been for her, I think, honestly, my path would have been much different. Um, and my friends. I had um, some great friends that uh, were my backbone. 
and where it became my family. And that's where my husband, where I myself um, crafted a word that, and a meaning that um, relatives are blood, blood given. God gives them to you. Your higher, higher power gives them to you. Family is who you create. Mm -hmm. And so for me, my family spans coast to coast. Uh, my relatives are primarily in North Carolina and Virginia, and, and, and they are my relatives. Now, there are some relatives that are my family, but there are a lot of people in my family, my blood relatives, that will never be what I consider as my family. Mm -hmm. um, my family are those that support my vision, support my who I am, and support my marriage, and support my, my family unit. Um, and those friends, I've been lucky enough from my high school years, I have been able to maintain connections with and been able to return the favor on a lot of situations and be their support. Um, I think that that is one of the things that in a time where it was unable, I was unable, um, or it was unable to really have that discussion and comfort, I was definitely ahead of the times and being able to have that communication with my friends and open lines of communication. And I didn't have to hide who I was. And that made a big difference. I love that. Now, do you have your book with you? I certainly do. Do you want to read a part of your book? Oh, certainly. Um, there is, I would be more than, um, everybody always, uh, let's see, the first chapter. Um, let's see. I will read, okay, so. Growing up in an extremely religious family that was heavily involved in the church, it's only fitting that most of my adolescent years were filled with memories of youth camps, teen events, and a lot of hellfire and brimstone preaching. My mind was crammed with the fundamentalist Christian religion, a doctrine from a young age. My father, a former preacher himself, was looking for a new church for our family to attend. The church had begun for our, quote, church family, and if you're from the South, you know which church you're a member of is just as important as which college you graduate from. I was a newly slim 15-year-old who was finally able to throw away the notorious Levi Husky jeans from two years earlier. I had short front spiked black hair and pewter framed wire glasses. I personally hated the idea of changing churches. That meant being forced to meet new people, which was never a skill of mine. Barely reaching 5'7", I was a typical, nerdy, average American kid with a bit more style than most guys my age. In search of our new church family, we pulled up to a church with an A-frame, architectural, and massive medieval-style 10-foot doors flanked by narrow-tinted windows on either side. Opening the, master, uh, the massive doors for my mother, struggling under the sheer weight of the solid, almost unmovable door, my father reaches over my head to speed up my gentlemanly obligations and allow my mother and younger sister, Emily, to walk under my arms. I gather myself from the near fall and I survey the wide vestibule that's swarming with church doors, hustling and bustling between small groups and the welcome table, which is pl placed between the two sets of double doors. The variety of women's perfume mixed with the equally stout brute made me cringe and my nostrils flare. Wall-to-wall mauve carpet with massive brick accent wall pillars encased three pairs of lightwood grained half-etched glass pane swinging doors. Through each pane of glass, I could see the upholstered pews. God, it looked like the Holy Ghost came down and blew Pepto-Bismol everywhere. <laughs> We were greeted by, by my Aunt Leslie, who broke herself away from a gaggle of women near the far door, while my Uncle David in tow, both 12 years senior to my dad. My uncle, standing in his perfectly pressed gray suit and red tie, stood a few inches taller than me. His salt and pepper hair was always in a swept-up, combed-over hairstyle, sprayed into perfection by multiple layers of what could only be seen as rave hairspray. As I look at Uncle David, I notice that, that where his pocket square normally was, was a plastic burgundy clip that spelled out the words Deacon in bold white letters. My aunt, who was on his left, was already in mid-hug with my mother. Mother, My Aunt Leslie, who was on his left, was flowing around in a, Turkish, a, Turk, a turquoise pleated dress with an oversized collar, matching open-toed shoes, and long daily grouping of gold-toned necklaces. As she made her way to me, she hugged me as the, and the corners of her dress, sharp from over the years of over-starching and heavy perfume, scratched my face. 
Her Princess Diana style hair, perfectly feathered back, bounced as she grabbed our hands and led us to the set of double doors to the sanctuary. Um, following her lead, my mother uh, latches her grip on my hands and pulls me to where our quote unquote family place is in the normal rows of pews. Any good Southern Baptist knows you have to respect the unspoken seating chart. Accidentally sitting, sitting where the Barnes family have sit for five generations would be a horrible idea. So we were grateful for Aunt Leslie's direction. So, yeah, so with the book, it's definitely something that dives into a lot of descriptive terms of what those experiences are. Um, I take the comedy and the humor mm -hmm. of what it's like. Uh, there are some passages in here. Uh, I get, I have one of my friends who um, messages me uh, or messaged me through the book and she actually got in trouble at work because she actually laughed out loud while she was reading on break <laughs> and it doesn't work really well when you work uh, a night shift but um there are a lot of references to uh to the southern obligations and the way um we can communicate and how we communicate i'm hoping the audiobook will be finished by um end of summer and the audiobook will be available and I'm actually going to be the one recording it. So it's going to be in my voice. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that, that is exciting. Especially I love when the authors are actually reading their own work because it seems like it's a little bit more personal when you're yes. reading. Um, what was interesting was my husband being from the Midwest, my husband's from Kansas and he was one of my proofreaders, uh, one of my first proofreaders. And I remember him laughing. He was like, what is this word? And as I looked at it, it's like, honey, that's Swanee. He goes, what is Swanee? I said, that's the Christian, Southern Christian way of being able to say, I swear. Because you can't say, I swear, because that's against the church. So you just say, ah, Swanee was your way of saying, I swear. And he's like, this thing needs a glossary. I don't know what these words are. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's another idea for a book. Southern terms you didn't know. <laughs> yes. And that, that's funny, too. It's like, um, Jenny... Um, also said that um, there was little quips in the in the book that stated that this was an understood Southern Mama's rule number two hundred and fourteen. Um, one of the books I really do want to create is a story a collection of stories that are called the Southern Mother's Rule Book, and there are certain rules that you uh, follow as a Southern Mama. And so that's one of the books that we're going to be doing um, once this uh, the Southern Burden series is complete. Um, that's going to be our next. Um, adventure in writing and you just said southern burden series how many do you think will be in the series um by what i've looked and by what i've organized it's actually gonna be three books um we have repentance of the southern burden being the first one um the second one is um acceptance of the southern burden and the third third one being escaping the southern burden mm. um this is going to be a three-part series that follows donovan shelton through um, high school years and college years and follow through him making his own path in this world and understanding where his southern roots take him and where that anchoring of where that southern roots are um, and how that though he tries to fight it how it still plays a part in his day-to-day -day life Yep, because you can't fight being from the South, no matter how oh, hard no. you try. You can't. It follows <laughs> no. you everywhere. <laughs> yes, it does. Now, how long did it take you to write your book once you came up with the idea to write it? So most people uh, laugh at me when I tell them that the actual process of pen to paper to write the actual book took me less than two weeks. Wow. The completion of the book in editing process, uh, formatting, cover design um, and the legalities is what took about four months. So it was a, a, all in all about a six month process to be able to do my first book because in the process of being nervous on trying to get it published and finding a publisher, I found a lot of resources because I'm one of those ones where I like to make sure I have the most um, ammo when I come to a fight. So I'm one to learn as much as I could. Um, so I wrote a lot, read a lot of blogs, read a lot of information on publishers and publishing and what that's about. And in the midst, I actually opened Jasada Publishing Company 
And so my very first book that I published under my Dosada publishing company was my book. And so we are actually in the process of helping other local authors self-publish and we're a bridge publisher for them for their first 50 books. We help them with their process of editing and we give TED talks on, okay, this is what you need to expect with your writing. This is what, how many editing sessions, this is what you need to expect in terms of financial requirements and what it looks like. And so we are just trying our best to um, keep that conversation going and support our local readers and authors. And, um, and that was one of the things I learned is that if I couldn't find a publisher, fine, I became one. So, <laughs> wow, is there anything you can't do? You already said you own several businesses. Now you say, okay, I read a book. Well, you know what? I can't find a publisher. I'm just going to publish it myself. <laughs> so that's one of the running jokes in our community was I was a person. I was a yes person. And that was sometimes I would say yes, even when I had no idea what it was about. So um, I worked in the medical field before I was a hairdresser. I worked as a hairdresser, was a national educator. And um and that's one of the things that Jenny and Tiffany and I have laughed and joked about is I'll give anything a shot. I, I will figure it out. There's enough resources out there. I will watch YouTube for weeks on end and master something or think I can master something. And then the biggest thing that I can give advice to somebody is if you're wanting to get into a world that is different than your norm, find people to be able to ask questions to mm -hmm. um that was key to me um in everything even in the publishing world is um my storyline started out as let's see if i can do it and then it turned into let's see if i can get it to 100 pages and then it turned into let's see if i can finish it um and I had people there that were pushing me and that were motivating me. And I think that's true in everything I've done. Um, all the crazy things I've done in real estate and development and businesses and nonprofits and performing as a drag queen for community events and the LGBT community. And um, I always say that when my time on this earth is done, that's when I'll rest. Um, I'm not ready to rest now. So. Wow. I'm going to go back to when you said it took you two weeks to write the book. Was it two weeks? Like totally that's all you did or were you doing other things as well? Oh no, I was still running my business. I was still doing hair. I was still, um, my husband was in graduate school. So I had a lot of time on my hands. My husband was in the last semester of graduate school and, um, during COVID being everything online, I knew that a, I couldn't stream television cause he was on video calls all day long. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I, I can hammer this out. So I had a lot of time on my hands when I got off work and even during work, I would pull out my laptop because something would come to my mind. Um, and how my, how the book actually made it a lot easier for me was as I was going through the day, I would have ideas and I would just keep a notepad with me and I would write down ideas and it may have been one or two sentences. Um, but it made it to the point when I sat down in front of my computer and I was ready to go, I would look at my notepad and I would see all the ideas and I would turn them into a story. Um, and I would just free flow, write. I would just sit there and type. And then the typing, the story is the easy part. It's the editing that is the hard part. Mm -hmm. Um, cause my book was edited before it went to print, um, at least six or seven times. And then even after it print was printed, we found some errors that we had to re submit and print more books with the edits fixed. Mm -hmm. um, it's just part of the process. And um, yeah, it was two weeks of solid, just hammering down, typing uh, at least five or six chapters a day. And um, and it was it was tedious, but it was fun though. It was one of the things like, I, it was, I guess you can say I'm a completist because I was like, I've got to get it done. I, I, like, I've got to get to this point. I've got to get to this point. Um, but I had great reason. I had great people around me. So that was one of the blessings that I would say it was having these people and these family, my friends, family, um, supporting me along the way. Yeah. I think that's great to have a community that supports you. Now, what would you say to someone who is trying to come out to their family? You know, cause that's hard. That's a hard situation. So the one thing that I have told a lot of LGBT youths is, 
coming out is a process and it's a rite of passage. And it's something that you have to do internalized first before you verbalize it out. Um, do an inventory before in mental inventory and a physical inventory of what you think can happen. If you think a, it's not going to be a safe situation. It's going to be violence. There is a chance mm -hmm. of you getting kicked out. You know, it's that you don't have an option B wait. Mm -hmm. You can still be who you are. You don't have to come out to everybody. If it's going to risk your safety, wait until you can be self-sufficient before that way they can't take anything from you. Um, coming out is something that is a powerful experience. Um, being able to be comfortable enough to say who you are and see the strength. I'm, I'm seeing these youth that are coming out and I wish I had their strength at their mm -hmm. age. Um, and I wish I had sometimes had their supportive parents, but unfortunately we're still in a period to where parents are unsure of the unknowns and mm -hmm. they are very scared and that's why they react the way they do the one thing that i will i, I to reiterate it again is figure out what your safety plan is before you come out is it safe for you to come out is it do you have a network of people that you know have your back no matter what and build up your armor before you go to the fight mm. and know that not everybody's going to be for you, but not everybody's going to be against you either. That it does get better and life does have a funny way of showing you that you mm -hmm. are important. And if you don't feel like you're hearing it, that you're important enough, then you need to tell yourself that you're important enough and that you're worth the wait. And your safety and your emotional and mental health is more important than being able to sometimes say it. Um, and two is don't ever say, I'm, don't ever come out in anger. Don't mm -hmm. ever come out in jest. Um, don't ever pick your times to come out because this is as important as a wedding day. This is a day you will mm -hmm. always remember your entire life and um, make sure it's when you want it to be. I love that. Because sometimes, you know, parents, they listen and they go, not really, you're not really like that. And they poo poo, but mm -hmm. you just got to be strong in who you are. Yeah, exactly. And it's not proving. It's just more or less uh, uh, the, what we've told um, a number of youth um, that have come to us and asked for their advice. Um, like I said, my husband and I, with us on in the business, we kind of become pillars within the community, which I'm very thankful for. Mm -hmm. But also a lot of youth come to us and ask, um, the one thing I tell them is, is be strong in who you are. Mm -hmm. Don't let someone else dictate who you're saying you're going to be and who you feel in your heart. Um, at the end of the day, it is your name. Mm -hmm. It is your spirit, your heart. Um, it, and it, it gets better and nobody can tell you who you are. And that's one of the things that I, try my best to instill in these youth and sometimes even adults. I have uh, coached and worked with somebody that was in dealing with depression that was 62 years old wanting to come mm -hmm. out. And, um, and that was probably one of the most powerful, um, scary situations because a lot of times you, you only see the young person coming mm -hmm. out. You don't see or hear about, you know, our seniors and, and older people that, you know, are apps actually able to say those words. And, um, it, it, the main thing is, is just pick a safe place, pick a safe person. Um, look at your community, look at who, you know, that you can turn to and have a shoulder to cry on. And sometimes that is family members. Um, sometimes it's not, um, but it can, they can come in every aspect in place. I never in a million years would have thought that my biggest support would have come from my school librarian. Wow. Um, I would have never thought that. Um, but your support can come from wherever you need it to be. So our time is almost up. Can you tell people where they can find you at? 
Absolutely. Um, my book is available on Amazon. It's also available for purchase on my website. That's J.R. Grayheim. That's G-R-A-Y-H-E-I-M.com, as well as some of our other merchandise that includes our full line of stickers that are all uh, sayings and slogans that are from the book. Um, they're also available on Amazon, on e-read and Kindle Unlimited, as well as print on demand. Um, we're hoping to be in some local bookstores here in Fayetteville and the surrounding areas. And um, our second uh, book launch will be, um, we will be showcasing that on our Facebook. That is facebook.com backslash Southern Burden. And then we also are on Instagram, Instagram at Southern Burden. And that way you can find us no matter what, just type in Southern Burden and it'll pop up and be able to connect with me. Um, you also can email me at jrgrayheim at gmail.com. Um, when's your second book coming out? I'm hoping the second book will be um, sent to the editors by the end of June. Um, and now that we know the process, we're hoping it's going to be a faster process. Um, this next book is actually considerably longer than the first one. Um, so um, this one envelops a lot more um, situational um, Donovan and their characters. Um, are going to be experiencing a lot more of uh, the acceptance of who they are, mm -hmm. um, the trials and tribulations. And um, there might even be a coming out story and situation that, that is found within the pages of the acceptance of the Southern Burke. Wow. I cannot wait to read the second one. Um, you're welcome to come back on once you launch it to talk about the second one as well and the third one in the series and then your other <laughs> books as well because anybody that has a faithful connection is always welcome on the show no matter what. <laughs> and anybody that awesome. is friends with Jenny and Tiffany and I, I feel like we're friends now too because we know both of them and you're you're just a sparkling shining light. You're a shining oh, light to others to show people that you, yes, you can be different, but you can still accept people for their differences. And I love that. Exactly. Exactly. So well, Joshua, I want to I want to thank you so very much. It was such a huge honor um, and a privilege. Uh, I, I, I hope that anybody that, that sees what you're doing um, can celebrate each other and celebrate you. And thank you so very much for, um, for understanding the power the power of acceptance and thank you very much for that yes there is true power in acceptance it doesn't mean that you're trying to change everybody to your way it's just you've got to accept people for who they are and love them like like jesus says love everybody yes, love sir. your neighbor so absolutely there it goes so joshua i want to thank you for coming on and guys the book is the repentance of the southern burden and highly recommend it i'm only halfway through but i told him first and up close i was only halfway through right before we yes. even started <laughs> yeah. but i am already like sitting at the edge of my seat waiting to see what happens next so <laughs> i will put in the show notes where you can find the book as well as where you can contact joshua and once again be blessed and most importantly keep chatting bye guys bye guys thank you chats from the blog cabin we not only have voices for a podcast but also faces for youtube don't miss your next episode